Welcome to Blank Sheet. I'm Emil. Today, we're delving into the artistic process of Steve Hackman. Steve Hackman is a composer, he's a conductor, producer, DJ, arranger, songwriter, singer, pianist, and even a rapper. Steve uses his wide-ranging abilities to create ingenious hybrid compositions that blur the lines between high art and pop art. Steve synthesizes composers and artists like Bartok and Bjork, Beethoven and Coldplay, Tchaikovsky and Drake, and most recently Brahms and Radiohead. And that's what we're talking about today. Steve, welcome to the show. Hello, Emil. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for being here. This is an honor having you on this podcast. Today, um, as I said, we're talking about your latest creation, which is Brahms versus Radiohead. Uh, tell me a bit about it. Sure. Well, Brahms versus Radiohead is a symphonic synthesis of the Brahms first symphony, composed in 1876, and Radiohead's seminal album, OK Computer, from 1997. Uh, it was one of the first pieces I wrote in this kind of long-form fusion style, if you will. The piece is basically Radiohead seen through Brahms's lens. So I use Brahms's compositional technique, his harmonies, his counterpoint, and the form of his first symphony. And then I channel Radiohead's music basically through that. So three singers join the full Brahms orchestral complement to create this kind of synthesis. What is it that made you see Brahms and see Radiohead and decide to put those two together? Well, I've been on a lifelong mission, really, to combine popular and classical music. As a student at the conservatory, I was sort of in the closet as a pop musician, if you will. Mm. I couldn't tell my conducting teacher, Otto Werner Mueller, at the Curtis Institute of Music, that I was at night moonlighting as a songwriter or right. a band member. A certain stigma existed there, I guess. Of course. Right. And one that, you know, I think developed more in my own mind. You know, I, I, I don't know. I think you definitely felt, I mean, it was a serious place for classical music, a wonderful place. It's, the, I, of course, I'm biased, but the best place in the world to study classical music, if you ask me. In any case, I always had this love for popular music and I was following it with just as much passion and just as much discipline as I was following um, classical. And it was always my goal to combine them someday and to show that they were a lot more similar than people might think. That's interesting that you refer to discipline in the context of both classical and popular music. You know, it's a, it's a common conception that discipline is a more classical thing. It's practicing, it's getting intonation, what have you. So I think that is definitely a misconception. Of course, you have a spectrum in both. You have your amateur pianist, uh, your beginning pianist, who is, you know, just going through their first book of, you know, playing with one hand. Just like you have your amateur guitarist who's playing one chord. And then it progresses from there. To reach mastery in either field, of course you need discipline, um, a great deal of technique, uh, of study. I think one of the primary differences, and I think this is what leads to that misconception, is that in classical music, we study the masters and we seek to recreate those beloved masterpieces. In popular music, though, you pick up a guitar. Most of the time, people want to write their own music. So this, it's a huge difference. It's very interesting to me, of course. What is it that breeds that? Why is it that someone who picks up a guitar, you know, just, you know, is 
perfectly at home playing at a party around a campfire, but someone who picks up a cello is, you know, more hallowed in that way. Why does that still exist? The repertoire in classical music is so amazing. We want to be able to play those pieces because we fall in love with those pieces. You know, if you're a cellist, you dream of playing the Dvorak Concerto, right. the Haydn Concerto, the Bach Cello Suites. You've, that music has been bred into you. Right. And you, we've been taught that way as well. Your teachers, they are training you so that one day you can play that piece with perfection or with mastery. I guess education plays a role there. I think huge. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I wonder, what, what would it be like if, if in our classical music education we valued improvisation and composition as much as we valued virtuosity and the recreation, the recreative element, if you will? It, I think it's the rare popular musician who gets to a point where mastery of the instrument um, is, is valued above the creative instrument, uh, mm. the, the creative element. So it's almost backwards. Popular music is the creative segueing to mastery. And classical music could be mastery, which then segues to creative. Well, I don't know how much that segue happens in the classical sense. Mm, mm. I think you, you know, um, because, and listen, I'm here in Calgary conducting the Calgary Philharmonic Orchestra. If those musicians weren't wholly focused on the mastery of their instruments and their own individual virtuosity, the incredible music that we made last night and that we will make tomorrow wouldn't be possible. You know, it's, it is owed to their singular focus. I, I mean, I, I don't know them all personally, but, you know, a, a musician of that level has been singularly focused. So that's, it's, a, it's kind of a double-sided coin there. Backtracking to you actually creating these sort of things, tell me about what you actually go through when you identify. So you identify Brahms and you identify Radiohead. How do you go about beginning to put them together? It's an improvisatory process. And it's the reason this work is special for me is because I think it combines a lot of different techniques and skills that I've learned all, all along my musical journey, which has been sort of um, long and, and scattered, which is, is, is wonderful. I think we all, as creatives, you know, we're, we're pursuing something that we think is going to be the goal, and then we get there, and maybe it's not quite right, and then we pivot, but along the, la- along the way, we've learned and accrued some sort of skill that we can use later on. So... Right, it's not a straight line. It's a constant process of revision and discovery, that sort of thing. Exactly. Exactly. It's not a straight line. Yes, that's, that's the perfect way to say it. In these different lines of pursuit I've had, one of the biggest one has been arranging. And I've been arranging music for almost as long as I've been playing music, retranslating music into other mediums. And that's one that I'm drawing upon mainly in, with these pieces, with also a heavy, heavy uh, emphasis on my work in Counterpoint. Okay. And in composition. And counterpoint is a huge part of this blending yes. process, right? Definitely. It's, it's what enables me to treat the music of Radiohead like Brahms. With this music, these are two of my most uh, favorite pieces of all time. And I also fell in love with them around the same time, when I was about 19, 18, 19 years old. So I know them intimately well, and there was no process of learning or familiarizing myself with the music because it was already there, you know, in my bones. I could sit down and play either at the piano from memory, not a problem. So that I, I say that not to, you know, to boast, but just to say that I was already, it was already there. 
And so beginning the process of combining them, I could just, I could start immediately. Mm. So it started with having them both in my mind and letting them sort of coexist in my mind for the first time, you know, because of course it's... And that takes place in your mind. Definitely. That's before you turn to a page or turn to making it concrete. It's just having the two battling and, and, you know, creating a synergy inside of you. Definitely. And again, the familiarization is so crucial here. Right. Because if you know a piece that well, and you know what the message is, you know what the key signature is, you know what the time signature is, you know what the themes are, you know, that, that just, let's just say that exists as a singular entity in your mind. And before I wrote the piece, they were sort of separated in different, uh, you know, quadrants or whatever. And so with this process, I said, okay, what happens if all these little bouncing balls, let's say, that are these individual works within these pieces, the individual movements and the, the sections of those movements, and then the songs of OK Computer, what happens if you just remove the wall and they start bouncing around together? You know, which ones have some sort of um, kinship with the others and commonalities? And, you know, that, that was just, that's just fun. Right. That, you know, to think like, okay, Paranoid Android starts within this key. All right, it's in, it, it's in this rhythm. It's this many beats per minute. All right, so, you know, you just, and you're going, oh, okay, so no surprises, that second chord, no surprises. Ah, it's the same exact, uh, you know, penultimate chord right, in the Brahms right. second movement, things like this. And so there was a few days of that, or maybe let's say a week of that. I don't know. I remember I had to write this piece really quickly. I think it was in like three mm-hmm. weeks, but it's been revised a couple times since right. then. And the revision is always tough. In that first period when it's bouncing around, is that a conscious process or is it a subconscious? Like, does it just happen when you're on the train or driving or do you sit down at a place and, and, and train your mind to do both? Both. And when you're, I think this is probably true for any musician, when you're studying a piece intently or working on a piece intently, it's just, it, it is playing in your subconscious at all times. It can be actually, it can drive you pretty nuts. And it can make it really hard to fall asleep. But but it was both. I remember being at the gym, um, you know, and having my iPod or at that time and like listening and then jotting down ideas. I remember when I was walking and I remember just kind of sitting down a lot and just like thinking and just kind of letting my imagination go kind of crazy with these things. And I kind of came up with a bit of a map before I even hit the piano of, okay, Karma Police will work here. Exit Music for a Film will work here. And then it was about putting the Brahms First Symphony on the music stand at the piano, starting to play it. And then in those moments where I thought it could work, improvising and just seeing, you know, how letting my kind of fingers go and just figuring out how to combine them. Hmm. I find that when, you know, you're, you're coming up with a creative project or what have you, and it all consumes you, you can't sleep, you can't just enjoy a cup of coffee without your mind constantly battling, that's the best way to create an independent project. Like, I, I, I usually do a lot of, you know, my documentary work and everything, I do it on my own a lot of the time. And the thing, the, the caveat with doing something on your own um, is that you don't have a committee to bounce it back against. Yeah. So say I work in a, in a situation which involves a committee, creating a, an artistic process, that's completely different. And mm. then the product is completely different. Yes. Because when it's just you wrestling with your own mind, it's, it's something different, I guess. Agreed. You know, these, I've written a lot of these pieces now, and of course I write a lot of my own music. And whenever I go into a creative 
um, time period that's usually reserved. Like I know for this month I'm going to be writing or, you know, I'm, I'm in, in the weeks before I'm sort of preparing because I know I'm about to kind of hunker down, you know, and it's, it's, it's almost like, all right. You're saving for the winter. <laughs> for sure. Preparing your body. I think preparing yeah. your, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, maybe it's like just as the, as the time goes by, but it is preparing your body. You're right. going to, you're going to be sitting and sitting at the piano for this many hours, sitting at the computer for this many hours. You right. know, it's a mental and a physical thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, but I enjoy it, and it goes fast, I will say. I write quickly, and that's not to say that I don't have, um, I don't confront challenges that are daunting and that, you know, stymie me for days at a time. Um, With Brahms Radiohead, I will say there wasn't any like that. Uh, There weren't any like that, I should say. Mm -hmm. But the piece did get revised twice, because the original version only included, I think, seven songs from the album. Okay. And then I felt like it needed more, so I added one, and then I felt like it needed a couple more, and I added two more, and now now it's done. It's got 10 songs from the album, and I think that's, it's a 70-minute work. I don't think it's going to get any longer now. Right. So then one question I have is when you're mixing um, songs that each, probably each song in, in that album is on a different topic, sometimes a different theme, what have you, how do you mitigate the storytelling um, from Radiohead when you're remixing it and mushing it together to expand for a much longer work of Brahms? Mm, I, I, can, I approach it in a, a broader sense. Mm. The, the album, I think, has several kind of central themes. Right. And, you know, this, this kind of anxiousness at um, our modern society, um, at the kind of digitalization of society. Um, how people were coming, becoming more and more separated from one another, um, kind of doubts about our leadership, about consumerism. You know, it's, it all adds up to anxiety and tension and pressure to me. The Brahms piece, you know, just for a little music history here, you know, he, he basically, I mean, talk about pressure. Robert Schumann, the great German composer, basically declared that Brahms, when he was 20 years old, was sort of Beethoven's successor. And, you know, Beethoven, of course, is, you know, was a big deal. (laughs) It still is a big deal. So when you're 20 years old and somebody says you're the next Beethoven, that puts an enormous amount of pressure on you. He took about 20 years to write this piece. Yeah, I was just going to say he he wrote his symphonies much later in life because he was just, just too scared. He did. I mean, he was he was smart. Now, Brahms destroyed a lot of compositions, and Brahms was his own worst critic. And in those 20 years, he, of course, wrote large works that were symphonic in order to sort of train himself and acclimate himself to the symphonic structure and the symphonic palette. So it's not as if he was just working straight on this piece for 20 years, of course. But he took his time. And in the first movement especially, and then the fourth movement, we feel that anxiety and that pressure and that tension. Mm. Uh, you know, working with the Calgary Philharmonic yesterday, I, I was talking a lot about how it's wound so tight that it's just, it is ready to absolutely burst open. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the pressure is, is so great. And he weaves that into the music uh, wonderfully. And I think that's one of the things that, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why I combine them, but I think that's one of the reasons why the piece does work because they have that similarity. 
Yeah, I guess when I was listening to Radiohead, I've just been listening it to the past, you know, couple days trying to, to familiarize myself. I really felt this sense of impending, you know, energy about to explode sort of a thing, but never ultimately explodes. Right. right. No, yeah, in the, in the case of Radiohead, I would agree. Yeah, the, there are these bursts in, in songs, you know, I, I feel like I think about like, paranoid android you know that that those shredding solo of johnny greenwood and then of course the the end kind of choral rain down section i mean that's a wonderful release there that you know i mean a lot of people would consider that that's the most important song on the album Mm. um one of the most important maybe rock songs ever it i think embodies the best out of all of them the character of the Brahms symphony so once you have bounced all of this around in your mind, once you've spent, you know, several weeks, you know, going to the gym and thinking about it or consciously thinking about it or whatever, when you actually try to articulate it, and I find that in every, in every creative endeavor, whoever is doing it, it's the bridge between um, the thought and the tangible product, which is the most difficult and requires the most grumption. That process between the thought and the tangible product, of course, is is the tech. That's what requires the technique. Mm-hmm. That's the work. That's a very enjoyable part of the process for me. And and again, it goes pretty quickly for me. But then the real kind of nitty gritty, of course, is scoring it. Right. And you know, I score at I, I play at the piano, and then I score at the computer. And that's when, of course, it 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 is made tangible. And that's tremendously fulfilling because that's when, you know, your, you know, your, your whims or your, you know, your dreams start to become a reality where you're like, this is, this might work. So then when you score, it's different from starting with blank staff lines and then you, you know, put your notes where you want them to be. How do you actually go about scoring something with, with, with sort of overlaying two different things or putting two different things together? Well, it depends, I should say. There are many types of synthesis in this work. Sometimes the Brahms symphony is left intact and Radiohead is laid over top. That is probably the minority of the time. Okay. So that is only, let's see, at the end of No Surprises, um, Bill sings a, a basically kind of a, a reprise of No Surprises over the that beautiful ending of the, the movement. Climbing Up the Walls is, is a brand new section in this version that is straight laid over the Brahms. So it's adapted Radiohead laid over Brahms. That's it. Other than that, they are these hybrid sort of vignettes that I created that more or less follow the form of the Radiohead song. Okay, so just just think of kind of a time continuum of the Brahms symphony. And then at the moment where some sort of marriage is possible, we break off into sort of a new continuum. And that's now become, we go into this hybrid world where it follows the structure of the Radiohead song from that point on, whether it's Karma Police or Paranoid Android. In that hybrid, the Radiohead harmonies are altered in order to accommodate Brahms harmonies. There are Brahms melodies laid over top. In other words, the song has been changed to accommodate the Brahms coming in, if that makes some sense. Mm. And then also, many times in this piece, I use a device where in between verses or in between sections of a radio song, I'll insert some, some quoted Brahms material. So like um, 
in between the first chorus of Paranoid Android and the second verse, we go back into a quote of Brahms. That happens often in this piece as well. How do you alter the Brahms itself? Do you do you have a certain limit of how much you're willing to alter the keys or the modes or what have you in the in the Brahms underlay, I guess you could say? So in the in the former example that I stated before, the Brahms stays as is and the radiohead on top is altered. Right. In this hybrid world where we take the form of a radiohead song but we're just laying Brahms over top. Sometimes I, I had to alter the Brahms somewhat in order to fit the Radiohead harmony, but sometimes and often I change the Radiohead harmony in order to fit the Brahms. So one thing that comes to mind is like exit music for a film. The harmony of the chorus of that song is altered so that it can fit the harmonies of the Brahms fourth movement. And that happens quite often. Subterranean Homesick Alien, same thing. Um, Paranoid Android, not as much airbag significantly i change in order to fit the introduction music of the brahms so it's yeah there's it's kind of every every which way right it's it's completely amorphous you don't craft any rules that you're that you that you stick to it's whatever whatever sounds whatever is intuitive definitely and again it's improvisatory right explain a little more about what you mean by improvisatory meaning um i'm at the piano yeah and i'm playing a radiohead song but I'm constantly thinking of how to adjust it to fit some Brahms in. So I'll kind of lead in with some Brahms or again, a, you know, like Lucky happens in the fourth movement of the Brahms. So you're going along with the second, second theme of that fourth movement. And then all of a sudden you transition to Lucky. And then as I'm playing Lucky, I'm constantly thinking, what can I lay in here? What counter melody? What uh, harmony of Brahms? What counterpoint? It's play. You know, it's musical play, improvisation. I guess some people really they they start their whole process at the at the page I guess where they they more in a in an academic way almost you know construct their melody and play it back more in their own head I guess the way you approach it is more of a you know, more of a, a stereotypically popular way of approaching it, where you sit and you, you take it seriously, but it is almost like a, a jam-out session with yourself. Uh, I think the, the, the great masterworks of classical music have all been improvised. Mm. Uh, I, of course, there are some composers that revise much more than others. You know, you think of Bach and Mozart as master improvisers that were capable of just in one fell swoop you know, creating an incredible piece of music, cover to cover. Then you think of a Beethoven or a Brahms who did a lot of revision, but all master improvisers, Wagner, Chopin, I mean, just go down the list. I don't think we make music word for word, just like I'm not thinking about connecting one word to the next as I talk to you right now. It's a thought that I'm trying to convey and that, you know, and the big picture's thoughts and then the sentences come out, the words, I mean... Music is a language, and it is improvised as such. So It's a gesture. Definitely. I mean, listen, it's, it's all... I think the most authentic and real compositional processes are those ones that are improvised mm. and that have almost this, this big bang or this burst where it's a singular thought that is carried out through 45 minutes of music, 60 minutes of music, 5 minutes of music. Yeah, I recently interviewed a, a conductor, um, Danuk Wijartney, um, and, and a really interesting philosophy he brought was if you have a, 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 he drew a little diagram too, if you have a singular point, then you are the um, creator, you are the composer, you have this singular point, which is the idea. 
and you go along this sort of uh, expanding line where you get to great detail. And the great detail um, is the finished product. And then um, I'm, I'm drawing in my notebook right now. I guess everyone listening can, can you know, <laughs> imagine it. It's beautiful. The conductor's job and the musician's job is to take this great detail, a 40-minute piece or whatever, and try to distill it back to the original intention, try to distill it back to the original idea. Exactly. I think that's, I, I agree with that. I think that's well put and sort of a good symbol for all that. And I would say, yes, that that point, that single, that singularity is that that creative burst, that creative idea. You know, I think, I can't help but think of the first, you know, the first moments of the Eroica Symphony, these two, you know, magnificent E-flat major chords. And then basically he just takes us on a journey for, you know, 48 minutes. Hmm. But it's all right there. Yeah, so you could say that the singularity is the idea, and then the, the all the details are that's that's the um, the tangible form, as mm. as you were saying before. Right. I guess it's all about that journey, whichever direction you choose to take it. Definitely, whichever right, whichever kind of um, direction you are the steward of. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. When you're actually rehearsing this stuff, when you're actually bringing it to musicians and conducting it. How is that different, or is it different from composing, say, or or uh, conducting, say, a, a a normal untouched work of Brahms or what have you? Well, it's very different. Hmm. It was a lot more challenging at the beginning than it is now because I think now this work is a little more established and it has a track record. In the beginning, oh my gosh, I mean, this was just seen, I think, really much, really a sacrilege, and it's a, you know, it's almost a. Um, insult to injury for the musicians because first of all you have conceptual struggle here just like we were talking about before when you you grow up playing this music and you hope one day to be able to perform the Brahms violin concerto or the you know the Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and you know this music is the bible to us whether it's permissible (laughs) to perpetrate on this music in this way that's that's a discussion and a lot of these musicians of course are gonna say no you who are you to do this it's perfect as it is this you know it's a very difficult concept and that's i understand that i understand their position so that's that's number one and then number two if we're just doing a, a run of the brahms first symphony with an orchestra this is a piece they play often but now you're adding in all this Radiohead. You're changing the Brahms. There's all these subtle little differences. E naturals are E flats all of a sudden. You know, time signatures are different. And so then they're thinking, oh my God, well, now what is this? Now I have like, you're, they're looking at the page and they're thinking, I, I knew this piece before and now it's different. So Right, that must be really difficult for the musicians. I didn't even think of that, how you're so used to floating along and you know exactly where your page turns are. Yep. And then it's, you get hit with something. Exactly. Right. It is difficult. So it's difficult conceptually, um, you know, from a, a philosophically, and for them to just allow themselves to, to play the music. You know, they might be so, I mean, some might be, you know, so against that they just choose not to play those weeks, and I've certainly had that. But, <laughs> but then, then there's the, the work of doing it. Again, it's gotten a lot better, and our industry is changing, and the world is changing. The classical music world is changing along with it. And I think it's been recognized now that the transformation of these pieces is not meant to supplant the original. It is meant to just introduce it to a new audience and be a reinvention. 
and be a complement to the masterworks that they are playing in their pure form the other 99.99% of the time. Right, right. So... And I guess it, I, another thing which is difficult is it's very different for different types of audience members. Normally, you know, an audience which is exposed to a new piece of music or whatever, you know, regards it as a new piece of music. But you've got one demographic or one set of people who have, as yourself, you know, listened to these pieces and, and been a part of these pieces for, for their entire life. And then it's an absolute shock. And they detect the seams, I guess, where, yes. where it goes from one thing to another. Yet you take someone who's less of a, hasn't studied Brahms or it hasn't even heard Brahms, say, um, which I'm sure there will be people um, at the concert tomorrow. And uh, they, they just, you know, they probably wouldn't be able to detect where things have been skewed. And what right. have you. It's on both sides. Right. There are people that love the Brahms for Symphony that don't want to see it tampered with, but there are people that love OK Computer that want it only that way. Right. You know, there's... The purists in every... Exactly. Every form, yeah. There are purists on both sides. Yeah. And, you know, they hear the harmonies and they think, oh, this is like barbershop or like this sounds... Or they hear the orchestra and they say, this is like Disney music or something. And, and you, you kind of think to yourself, okay, so strings equals Disney music? Interesting. But... Um, <laughs> Having that much reverence and respect and love for those original pieces is something that I, of course, value and I think is important. And they deserve that respect. They deserve for people to love them so much that they have every single moment memorized. I live for that. I think oftentimes, to be honest with you, people will criticize a transformation of something in order to prove somehow they're something about themselves, they're trying to portray how studied they are or how much they love classical music or alternative rock music or Radiohead by bashing something else. So they hate on something in order that they somehow legitimize to everyone else their own prowess or their own understanding of the original works. I see that a lot. And... I've probably done that mm. at at a certain time in my life. I think when I, I when I was in college, I probably hated on a lot of pop music just to prove to people that I yeah. had some sort of higher, you know, understanding of classical music or, you know, I never listened to like what was on the radio. I was listening to like Genesis or Pink Floyd or Crosby Sills and Nash or Radiohead. So I get it too. I think I've done it. Well, I'm sure every single person going to the concert tonight will, will get to experience this and enjoy it in their own way, in their way that they interpret it. And uh, I'm excited for it. Yeah, I, th- I am excited for it too. And it's a, it's, I think it's about creating something. It's the technique of, technique of putting this together, of course, is very interesting. And I hope it inspires people, of course, artistically and creatively to kind of push boundaries or break, break boundaries down. That's the bigger picture here. You know, getting Brahms fans and Radiohead fans together is, I think, important to understand each other and to listen to each other, listen to the music. And I don't know, that, that, that's, that's sort of the bigger picture. It's almost a peace process. It's a treaty. I like that. If you, can, if, if you put it that way. I like that, yeah. Thank you, Steve, very much. Tomorrow, that is March 9th, uh, 2019, Steve is conducting Brahms v. Radiohead uh, with the Calgary Philharmonic Orchestra here in Calgary, Alberta. Uh, As I said, I'm going to be there. And as I said, it's a completely sold-out show. It's going to be a huge event that the whole city will be 
vibrating uh, afterwards at probably. Uh, Steve, any plugs, Instagram, things that you want to shout out? Oh, yeah, please. Um, my personal Instagram is Steve Hackman Music. And uh, then Stereo Hideout is my musical brand. And then the singers, uh, we, we didn't get to talk much about the vocalists on this show, but the singers on this show are fantastic. So please look them up. Uh, Andrew Lipke, uh, Karen Tayar, who is under Karen Sound. And it's Karen, K-E-R-E-N. And then Will Post, who is under Will Post Music. Phenomenal singers. Again, hybrid musicians trained in various disciplines and amazing people. And they will be here in moments. And I'm looking forward to making music with them. And the just tremendous Calgary Philharmonic Orchestra. I mean, what a great group. We really had a joyful reading of the Brahms First Symphony last night. And I, it's going to be fun. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve, for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Blank Sheet. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing it with friends who you think might also find it enjoyable. Uh, you can follow the podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Blank Sheet Podcast. And follow me as well at Emilio Film on Instagram. We'll see you next episode. Mm-hmm.